it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 599 for June 20th, 2019, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. One of the reasons I named Chit Chat Across the Pond so nonspecifically was so that I could have anyone on to talk to whom I found interesting. This week, we are joined by Dr. Devin Polashik. Dr. Polashik is the Joint Director of the New Zealand Institute for Security and Crime Science at the University of Waikato. I will further embarrass her by mentioning that she was recently awarded with the Queen's Birthday Honor. That's as in Queen Elizabeth herself. Dr. Polashek has been made a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Criminal Psychology. Wow, you sound fancy, Devin. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alison, for this opportunity to talk to an audience I would otherwise seldom reach. And yes, it is one of the privileges of being in the Commonwealth that we get these rather strange honours. I've had the most interesting reactions from Americans who don't seem to know whether they should curtsy. I've been asked where my sword is, all sorts of... And I mean, airport security will never allow you to bring a sword in, which has been very frustrating. They won't let you bring no, the sword in? No, Aww. not even a fold-up one. So, you know, it's been a long week, but um, <laughs> quite an interesting one explaining this rather arcane award. But still, quite an honor. Well, um, I've asked Dr. Palashik to come on. I'm just going to call you Devin. That would be better. Tired of saying yeah. that. Um, yeah. We have had Dr. Marianne Gary on before, who I believe uh, with whom you are acquainted in some way. Quite, uh, quite deeply. <laughs> anyway, um, she has been encouraging me to get Devon on to talk about her study of field, field of study, I should say, which I find kind of terrifying because you study psychopaths. Yeah, so I um, started life as a clinical psychologist working with in corrections, so with offenders, and in New Zealand a big part of that is uh, designing ways to help those people come out of prison and stay out of trouble. Um, it turns out that in the process of understanding criminal behaviour, I had to understand the concept of psychopathy. So... Psychopathy is quite frequently found amongst people who are in prison for criminal activity, but of course there's also a lot of discussion about whether it's more widely present in the community and people like politicians or lawyers or uh, various professions. (laughs) Bosses I've had maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so um, as a result of uh, working with offenders and trying to understand criminal behaviour and some of the things that sit behind it in, in terms of causes and so on, I also had to get to grips with psychopathy. And the reason for that is not because psychopathy is inevitably involved with criminal activity. There are probably, depending on how you define it, there are probably an awful lot of psychopaths who um, don't necessarily do a lot of crime, but because the first person who really defined how to measure psychopathy chose to do that in a way that mixes up the personality aspects of psychopathy with criminal behavior itself. So you're saying by defining psychopathy in the context of criminal behavior sort of made like psychopaths are criminals, but that isn't necessarily something that would be true. Right. So the most widely used um, ways of measuring psychopathy uh, uh, involve an instrument or a series of instruments developed by Professor Robert Hare, who uh, is a Canadian. He's recently retired, but he developed the psychopathy checklists. And these are uh, checklists with a number of items that are rated not by psychopaths themselves, (laughs) although that's not as dumb as it sounds. 
and we'll get back to that. But but rated by um, people working with, say, someone who's assessing offenders might, like a clinician of some kind, might do these ratings. So because of that, he created an instrument where criminal behaviour is used as evidence of the presence of psychopathy. And then what you get coming out of that is the idea that psychopathy is causing the very behaviour that's being used to define it, which I think anyone can see is a pretty circular, right, right. empty kind of enterprise. But in fact, a lot of the research on psychopathy in prisons is of that sort of stature. So they're actually saying this person has psychopathy, therefore that's why they're a high-risk criminal. How do we know they have psychopathy? Well, because they've done a lot of crime. (laughs) So that's kind of dumb, really. It's not a very um, useful thing. And it's especially not useful, too, because um, we... Most people believe that psychopathy um, exists much more widely than just in terms of criminal activity, like I was saying before. And you can't really measure it if the instrument requires that you kind of have people in an institution with a criminal history in order to use the main measurement tool. So other methods have been more recently developed. And and the reason I was making fun before of of getting psychopaths to do them themselves is that these are largely self-report measures. Oh, they really are? Yeah, we've got two... Quite well validated self-report measures, and it's kind of counterintuitive to people that you might ask somebody to report on themselves and that they might be able to do that usefully, but actually people can, bizarrely. Um, So these instruments uh, have allowed us to measure the kind of key personality aspects of psychopathy in a wider range of populations, and so really enabled us to do a bit of investigation of the occurrence of psychopathic personality traits outside of criminal settings. Okay, so uh, we've kind of danced around a circle here to yep. where we haven't said what a psychopath is or okay. what someone with <laughs> psychopathy actually is. What, is. what is your definition or is there a, a well-respected definition mm. now? Well, for a long time, the definition has been someone who scored high on the psychopathy checklist, which again is a, a little lame. Um, there is actually no agreed upon scientific definition and... But there are sort of wide agreements about some of the components, and it's it's the it's not the individual components themselves that really matter. It's that they come together in one person. Oh, okay. So you could have some pieces of it, and wouldn't be defined as a, as a psychopath, but not all of them, without all of them. Correct. And okay. so and so that's introduced the idea that some aspects of psychopathy present without all the others might actually some of them might be quite adaptive and useful. Um, but in addition um, to that, it's worth saying that um, there is no, although it's considered to be a personality disorder, and we have uh, a really voluminous vol- a volume called the DSM-5, right, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, okay. which lists every kind of disorder you could ever have, and it's um, it's revised periodically. It's quite version what five. It's quite new. It still doesn't have psychopathy in it, which is really kind of interesting as well. So, is, is it not considered a, a personality disorder? Not in that sense. I mean, this is the this is the bible, if you like, that's used for, you know, um, if you're having managed healthcare in the US, you'd have to have a disorder that's actually in there. Oh, wow. and admittedly, people with high psychopathy don't tend to come in for help on their own very often. But, but if they did, they'd have to be diagnosed with a related disorder called antisocial personality disorder. So that's um, that's the closest match, but it's still different and, and tends to pick up more people than you'd pick up using the psychopathy checklist or one of these specific psychopathy instruments. So that's just kind of a historical oddness. Oddity, oddity, yeah, but the yeah. other part of that that I wanted to comment on is, is psychopathy is also not a taxon. And the term taxon means 
where, where it has a clear boundary to it. So you're either okay. a psychopath or you're not. And we always talk like this, right? We always talk about people being psychopaths, but technically, actually, people have different amounts of psychopathy. So is it like like we don't say uh, autistic, but on the spectrum? We do say that now, as if there's a continuum. And we also yeah. would say, you know, people with depression can have moderate, mild, severe depression. We talk about people being very bright, somewhat bright, not very bright. Right. That, you know, so a lot of things are on continua, and psychopathy is one of those things as well. So okay. technically there's no point at which you become a psychopath, Alison, and, right. and I am not. You know. Right. <laughs> we all have a little bit in us, maybe. Well, well yeah. okay, so Some so we've talked about the checklist that was uh, perhaps flawed in its circular logic. What, yeah. what is the, the more modern definition? Right, so... Because you haven't told us what a psychopath no, is I'm yet. I was hoping you hadn't noticed that. But, <laughs> uh, so what, there's a fair bit of agreement that the things that need to come together include um, a fairly fearless dominant kind of personality, so somebody who's quite comfortable um, putting themselves out there in the world. Uh, combined, Fearless dominance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and that combines with some pretty maladaptive, um, impulsive, uh, antisocial tendencies. So that, now, when we we were talking about this yesterday and you said antisocial, I think my definition of antisocial uh, was dif- yeah. different. So what do you mean when you say antisocial? Because to me, antisocial is I don't like to go to parties. Yes, and I was saying I think that the that's best thought of as being asocial, like people okay. who don't like socialising. Okay. And there are significant personality disorders associated with that, and they're different. Um, okay. Uh, antisocial refers to people's capacity to do things that are harmful, socially harmful, so breaking social norms. And so it's a much wider definition than crime. Okay. Um, so, for example, one of the characteristics of um, psychopathy might be uh, a failure to kind of um, be responsible for your children. So oh. people with psychopathy, uh, it's been suggested, might have multiple, particularly men, might have multiple children, you know, all over the place, and they're not the slightest bit interested in taking care of them or providing Or saying that is any concern. No, no, that, no. That that problem exists, no, right? that's just, they just breeze on to the next whatever. Yes. So... Um, there's actually a lot of behaviour that we can do in the world which is harmful to others, which isn't criminal. If you think about it, we all sort of we all have rules about how we should behave socially. I mean, gossip's a good example, right? Some people will not gossip because gossip can really hurt people's feelings and be harmful to their reputations. But generally speaking, it's not illegal, you know. I was just watching uh, an episode of the Andy Griffith show where, yeah. where Aunt B was explaining to uh, Andy that she never gossips and then proceeds to try to tell him something and he keeps calling her on it and she can't hear it. That she's saying, yes, <laughs> but don't you want to know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the kind yeah. of thing. So uh, antisocial behavior in uh, in psychopathy would be like what? Like well, uh, an example I gave was, you know, not looking after the children. kids. Right. Um, I guess having relationships with people purely so you can exploit them. Okay. Um, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating. Um, aggressive behaviour could be part of it. And, of course, aggression, again, is a much wider term than simply physical violence. It can refer to all kinds of um, behaviour that's just intended to, to be harmful to people. Okay. Um, I mean, bullying? Know. Yeah, bullying, yelling at people. Um and then there's a whole lot of other behaviour in the workplace that people have talked about, um, you know, lying to your manager about how other colleagues are performing and talking yourself up to the manager and then trying to, you know, presenting a false CV for jobs. Uh, so in every domain that you think of, relationships, work, um, being the, probably the most important domains that we have, people with psychopathy may be doing various things that, while not illegal, are essentially antisocial. And if everyone did them, the world would fall apart. But, oh, okay. So okay. Hopefully... There's only a few people around doing them. It doesn't, but it's a, you know, it's a pretty 
um, parasitic kind of way to live, I guess. And that seems like the squishiest part of the definition because social norms are completely different country to country, uh, city to city. You know, if I run up and hug you and I don't know you, that might be perfectly normal because I'm, say, from the South. But if I was from New York, that'd get me punched in the face. Oh, true. So that definition is is a little harder to to pin down, I would think. It is. I suppose the point you're making is that when we go into other places, we can end up breaking rules inadvertently. But but we care about that. Most of us care. And oh, okay. And so if it's we the lack of caring it's about the it. lack of caring. And I think this is something okay. we were talking about yesterday, that's, that people have the idea that people with high levels of psychopathy are kind of super criminals and that they're evil and scheming and very bright. And, you know, that's the kind of silence of the lambs kind of model. Right? Oh, okay. So, so in, in reality, um, people with psychopathy are often remarkably ordinary in what they do. Um, but, but what's key about what they do is it's often... Um, kind of excessively casual they don't care about a lot of things that we would care about and they don't care not only about other people but they don't care for themselves either so they're careless with their own lives their own futures um, their own decision making they'll take an action today that might end up backfiring on them tomorrow but they didn't really bother to think about whether that was the case so So repercussions to themselves or others or others or both would they be uh, more likely to take a lot of risks yeah Um, I mean People have said this, that, that risk-taking can be seen to be part of psychopathy. Okay. It, and it follows then that you'd expect, and that there is some evidence of this, you'd expect to find people with psychopathy, particularly where that, where that sort of poor decision-making is associated with really risky behaviour, don't have the life expectancy of other people either. Oh. And certainly the case with criminal psychopaths, that they're much more likely to be murdered, to have a car accident, even to kill themselves, um, puzzlingly. Huh. Um, Sometimes so they might really be carelessly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. so we've got fearless dominance, we've got the antisocial behavior. And well, this sort of impulsive, antisocial behavior. Yeah. Impulsive, that's an important piece. Of it. I think it is. I mean, the impulsivity can be understood in two different ways, I suppose. One is that way I was just talking about, where you're kind of under-motivated to care about things that you should care about. Hmm. And the other part of that is often an emotional thing. So um, in the way, so people will think of people with psychopathy as having no kind of emotions so um, okay. Bob here for example would say has this great phrase um, he's, know, the that the he's the one that did all this and he was a social psychologist he wasn't a clinician but he his sort of day one out of his degree he found himself working in a prison and he met a psychopath and away he went and he devoted his whole career to understanding them which is I don't know 30-40 years Wow. so he okay. really has led the field um, but he has led it in its particularly criminal direction, which I don't think is always helpful. But one of the things he says is that you know, a real psychopath, they know the words but not the music. So there's a sort of idea that they can fake being human, but they can't really pull it off. Oh, um, oh which is interesting. quite interesting. But yeah. in the in the criminal in the prison criminal population, um, so in research samples with the PCL instruments, so his his checklists. They tend to take people out who have high levels of anxiety, but would score highly otherwise. Um, what do you mean by take people out? If I mean, they're doing they- research on people with psychopathy, right. using these instruments to, to right. define high levels of psychopathy, they'll take out of the research samples. They'll give everyone also a questionnaire about anxiety. Okay. And then if they they're take anxious, out the they people take them who are anxious. Now, if I said to you, would you expect a psychopath to be anxious? You'd say absolutely not. Right. right. I would. I mean, I would. Right. It sounds well, crazy. Well, because if you if you're anxious, that means you're thinking about the repercussions of things. Well, precisely. And if yeah. you don't, then you wouldn't. Yeah, well, that's right. So it doesn't really fit with this kind of careless, kind of overconfident, right. bold, right. fearless person, right? 
But in fact, um, using the PCL in prisons, you often get quite high um, rates of people with what's called negative emotionality or who are very reactive to stress and other things that happen, and they react by having a lot of negative emotions. So, that so a negative be emotion and, and, and anxiety isn't necessarily the same thing, though, is it? It can be. I mean, so when negative emotions are often talking about anger, um, yeah, you know, stress responses where people get upset, I suppose. Okay. okay. I mean, the other, the other name for negative emotionality is actually neuroticism, ironically. But um, <laughs> okay. So people who are high in neuroticism, it's not just, you know, Woody Allen, it's all of us who are quite reactive to things, like we quite easily get stressed or upset about things. A lot of people I know, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have this thing called negative There might be one in the room. There or might two be. even, but <laughs> right. we'll move on. So um, unfortunately, when you use the psychopathy checklist you you gather up a whole lot of other criminals who have quite a lot of the features of psychopathy but um but also have this quite high level of negative emotionality which shouldn't most of us think shouldn't be part of psychopathy hmm which is kind of weird so is that starting to make you rethink well then we get into the concept of what's called secondary psychopathy and that's wait the, have we had the third def- piece of the definition yet uh, well the, i mean you, the, the third piece if you're going to have it would be cold-heartedness and some people put that in and some don't um, alternative, the alternative conceptualization has boldness, meanness, and this disinhibited, impulsive aspect. So what's different there, I guess, is the, um, the boldness maps well with the fearless dominance, right? right. But, but meanness. Meanness. A, yeah, so meanness, being right. mean, like yeah. enjoying being mean, um, is said to also be a feature of some people with psychopathy. So you don't hmm. have to have it, but you may have it. You don't have to have boldness, but you may have it. You do have to have this disinhibited quality, which includes negative emotionality and impulsivity, acting without thinking, but also acting in a reactive way, like just uh, reacting very quickly to things that happen to you and going off and you know hitting someone because they've made you mad without thinking about whether you should. What have done were the that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm starting to see what you're talking about about this continuum because you can see oh, that yeah. this is a like a uh, like a. Uh, a chart, a radial chart, where they, oh. there's a bunch of little points to the outside, and you can have pieces of some of that. Yes. But if you cover enough of the middle, then you're probably in this category. That's it. Yeah, I okay. mean that's right. And it's also um, because we've kind of defined it as being blobs of stuff, if you like. When you bring together some blobs, the combination is what becomes problematic, right? So, being fearlessly dominant could be a great quality in some places like being ceo or yeah because i mean you've got to have the you know you need a certain degree of courage um, right to, right for being good in those roles but if you put that together with not thinking decisions through and just acting <laughs> thoughtlessly right you know, that's a disaster but right. it's the fact that those two things have come together that's created a problematic individual right right Oh, that's it. That's really interesting. So, uh, yeah. when you start talking about uh, criminal behavior, is is there so there's criminal behavior and there's violent criminal behavior? Do right. you, are you categorizing those together when you're talking about psychopaths? Yes, I guess so. So, there's been a whole lot of research that suggests that people think psychopathy is associated with, you know, more use of violence. Um, people tend to think that in some parts of the research literature. But in saying that, they're always using the psychopathy checklist to make that association. Because a big chunk of that checklist is highly associated with the same other risk factors that predict criminal and violent behaviour, it's actually that part of it that's doing all the work. So getting back to the impulsive antisociality idea, Mm -hmm. that part of psychopathy is not unique to people with psychopathy. It's actually pretty much standard in any high-risk 
criminals. So people oh, who are high oh, risk, okay. I mean people who are career criminals, right? So okay. these are people who start early in life, they're in trouble, you know, early on in life. They're already antisocial as children. They have trouble at school. You know, they start doing getting arrested maybe in their early teens and they carry on. Often we now understand because everyone's getting older and keeping doing everything older. They're getting into their 50s, some of them, and still still involved somewhat in criminal activity. So that's that's a kind of high-risk person, high-risk of, of doing crime. Now, they have diverse careers. And as I said to you yesterday, <laughs> diverse careers. well, they do heaps of stuff. I mean, if you it, it, to understand criminals, you really want to understand that the key just the key dimension is how much offending they do and how like how many offences a year if you like because some people go forever and don't do that many they just do a few every year but the people that we concentrate on the most and the ones who tend to score high on the psychopathy checklist will have lots of offences every year uh, lots of different kinds of, of offences so too the more offences people have the more diverse they are because so people not just don't think, stealing cars not no, just breaking no, into houses no, not just all, attacking know, people no there'll be everything you can think of and we also know that the people with the most offences are also the people who are most likely to have violent offences so it's not the case that people specialise in violence with the possible exception of family violence where there are some people who only hit their partners and children Huh. Okay. And don't so do anything else, and they, you know, they could be quite high functioning. Let's that's face a, that's a whole other category. Okay. That's right. But a lot of these other criminals that we're, these criminals we're talking about will do that stuff as well. They okay. Just do everything because it, much. Well, everything's on the table. Yeah, pretty much because they're really operating in a way where they just do what they feel like when they feel like, and they don't care about the rules. So if you yeah. think about that, <laughs> I mean, there is a the- an interesting theory of criminal behaviour that says that we we would all be like that if we weren't socialised into being better than that. Which is a very, I mean, if you look at toddlers among the most antisocial people in the community, <laughs> well, they push each other down the stairs. I mean, if you did that as an adult, so we grow out of aggression. We actually socialised out of it oh. rather than the other way around. So it's quite an interesting idea. So maybe oh, people wow. with psychopathy and, and a lot of criminals in general, they just cut corners on everything. They don't really. So they might walk through your house and steal your salt shaker as well yep. as, as punch you for saying something yep. bad Absolutely. versus steal is, your car. Is, yeah, and I've talked to any hmm. number of people who, who are basically, you know, what's on the menu today? What, opportun- <laughs> what opportunities are there out there today for me? Like if I'm wandering through my neighborhood. Oh, and I want it. Yeah, well, I, I want yeah, to do right. it. I, do, I, I don't necessarily want to do everything, but if there's something, you know, I know, how to, I know how to fence those stolen goods. I know how to get sex without consent. You know, I know how to get into a house. I know how to break into certain cars. Um, I have all I, these skills. What can yeah, well, I use no, them today? It's a bit like that, eh? Oh, wow. um, but not skills so that they don't get caught, of course, because every now and then they do. So people are versatile, they have long careers. Those people will score high on that impulsive antisociality part of psychopathy, whether they have the other personality things or not. Okay, so they could not have fierce dominance. Uh, fearless dominance. Fearless they might dominance. be low on fearless dominance. They might be quite emotional, stressy sort of characters even. But they'll still score quite high on the instrument. But most of the work is being done by that second part, the impulsive antisociality part. Okay. And so there is okay. research showing that the psychopathy checklist doesn't predict violence very well at all if you take that part out of it. Oh. And that part is not unique to psychopathy. So this is one of the big debates people have: is is is, psych, is a psychopathy checklist just a just a risk assessment instrument? It's not really measuring psychopathy at all. Oh, okay. It's, okay. But of course, a lot of people, including Bob here himself. Um, who's made a lot of money out of selling this really popular um, instrument, will we'll argue against that. Um, but that is one of the arguments people make, is that the violence, the link to violence comes out of that, um, that it's capturing a lot of risk factors for crime and violence. 
like okay. for a criminal career, including violence. Because the risk factors for violence are actually really similar to the ones for other types of crime. There's not many specialist risk factors just for violence. It's oh, the same really? kind of stuff, really. It's a lot of the same factors that we know are underpinning crime. So uh, we've been saying people... Yep. But is this male versus female? Is it what? What are we talking about here? It's much higher in males as it's currently understood. Probably three to one ratio at least um, for psychopathy. Uh, people actually talk a lot about this. The sort of difference being largely a function of a key difference between men and women in their uh, how they express distress. So. Um, there is a gender difference there that's quite robust. Of course, there are exceptions, but and that says that men will tend to express distress or psychopathology externally by by acting out, by behaving badly. Okay. And women will tend to be more inwardly focused and get depressed and and do more passive kinds of responses and internalising behaviour. You know, getting an eating disorder or develop a cleaning fetish or something. You know, that's much quieter and more... Productive. Yeah, well, some, up to a point, Sometimes. a lot of these things are adaptive, let's face it. So given all of that, the um, the suggestion has often been that men get psychopathy and women get borderline personality disorder, which is itself associated with crime. Um, oh. And it's another personality disorder, and they there is some overlap between them conceptually, so... Oh, that's interesting. Okay, it so is, we can speak yeah. in generalities of men... But not exclusively to men. No, absolutely not exclusively. Yeah. No. So now your research has been into how to rehabilitate people. Uh, Is there, first of all, what? Oh, come on. There's no such thing. Uh, (laughs) You've done a lot of research into, into how to rehabilitate people, whether or not they've had psychopathy, or has it been mostly about psychopaths? Yeah, I mean, I've I've done a lot of research on on what we call rehabilitation programs. Um, the Canadians there was a small group of Canadian psychologists in the eighties who made major scientific breakthroughs in understanding what it is about people that underpins their propensity for crime, because there are stable individual differences in criminal propensity. Some people will never be involved. I mean, we all do little crimes. But some people will never be involved with the criminal justice system. Other people will be involved quite a bit, and other people will spend a lot of time in and out of various parts of the criminal justice system. So that's a that's a difference between people, and they were able to understand what parts of that difference, if you like, were changeable, and how you went about changing them, which is a kind of amazing thing, and not well known, yeah. actually, in, in sort of lay society. But we do know quite a bit about how to change criminal risk. And of course, we don't change it. The person does. You can't make people change, but you can make it a lot more easy and attractive for them to do so. But if uh, if I'm not a, I don't have psychopathy, and I just, uh, maybe I've been hanging out around with the wrong crowd, right? That's what parents always say. It's it never is. their kid. It's, yeah, no, it's they're the hanging crowd. out with the wrong, cr- yeah. the wrong crowd, which could or may or may not be true. But I mean, if, if that's the case, you can see that, okay, removing me from that environment where I'm with these people that are doing these, these poor behaviors might make sense. But if I've got a personality disorder that makes me not think about the repercussions of what I do... Mm then how does, you can't just remove me from that environment, right? That doesn't make me, can you teach me as if I have psychopathy, can you teach me to to care about the repercussions of my my actions? Well, it seems that you probably can. Um, I say that because a lot of my research has been done with with men who are 
called high-risk violent offenders in the New Zealand prison system, and they are men who, if you let them out of prison tomorrow and we had done nothing to change their criminal propensity, uh, upwards of 70% of them will be back in prison within five years. And what that means in actual practice, practical terms is that half of them will be back within a year of release. Oh, wow. And a quarter of them will be back within 100 days. So they're very high risk. And when I say prison, in New Zealand we are trying to use prison for serious things. So we have far more offenders on community sentences. So when I say back in prison, I mean they're going to do something quite serious. Okay. Not just a trivial thing like breaching parole or, okay. um, or some kind of minor crime that would get them a community-based sentence. So the clearly community high Community-based sentence? Yeah. I don't know what that is. Would you know what probation was? Yes. Yeah, so, so well, we have a bunch of them, right? Fines is the most obvious community-based sentence. People get fined all the time for minor criminal infractions. Okay, okay. G- a gazillion right. dollars a year in so fines. So you mean given not, not, pr- not imprisoned? Not imprisoned, but... But so community work, you can okay, get a number community of hours, service, yeah. community service, okay. and the most intensive sentences are typically with a probation officer involved in regular oversight. The person may have electronic monitoring and curfews and so on as well, drug okay. testing, various things. So but, everything that isn't imprisonment is what you call community. Yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. So back to what your point was before. I so I was, I, we work <laughs> with these people who are very high risk, and and because the people with those characteristics are responsible for disproportionate amounts of crime then if you could change what they were going to do when they got out, you could have a bit of an impact on the communities. That yeah, you were, the you were telling me yesterday the percentages of crime done by... Yeah, the, the sort of rule of thumb is that 5% of the community um, does about 50% of the crime. Wow. So it's like a lot of things. The so this is what you call is your really, low-hanging fruit yeah, to ex- fix. Well, exactly, <laughs> except they're hard to fix. Right? So <laughs> yeah, okay. that, even getting them to sit still in a room is a challenge. So, so what this Canadian group did was identify, it's, it's a fairly famous um, model now that they developed that has been used in quite a number of Western jurisdictions with good effect, which was, was simply to say target the highest-risk people because you can make the biggest difference with them. And we also know that people are at low risk of future crime. We probably shouldn't do anything with them, actually. We should just (laughs) get them out of the system as fast as possible because it looks like we can increase their risk by having too much contact with them. Oh, interesting. Well, and that might be partly that thing you were saying where they're they're actually basically going to straighten themselves out if you don't stick them in prison with a bunch of criminals for the next five years. In which case, it will change them in a bad way. So it's that kind of idea. But these high-risk people don't change easily, so you have to put a lot of time into them. Like You have to give them a lot of what's called service, human service contact. So your programs need to be quite intensive, a number of hours, typically hundreds of hours. Um, you, you try and work on the things about their criminal risk that are changeable, and you design interventions that they can engage with, which means, for example, if you're someone who doesn't get why you should try and think out your decisions a bit better in life, that we have to figure out how to hook you in. Like, why? How can we make that matter to you? And often we're working with people who've been in and out of prison for a number of years, they're in their early 30s on average, um, and they're heading towards being eligible for parole, and they're often a bit sick of the whole thing. So, you know, crime is fun when you're young. For, for some young men, it's a blast. You know, they love, really? they love getting in fights, they enjoy joyriding, you know, and they, and they get their kind of status in the world by, these, by being the baddest, you know, this, and all the young gang members and, and stuff like that. They're all into this kind of thing, but they grow out of it in a big way. 
Oh, really? They yeah. they see it as less enjoyable over time. I mean, they like see a that lot of things. <laughs> a lot of what we're talking about is the maturation process for men. Actually, if you think about it, like people will say, you know, he's finally settling down. Grow up. Yeah, right? grow up. That's right. Stop being such a boy. <laughs> um, and crashing around making a mess in the world, which which is what a lot of young men do. They they um, are at the sort of peak of their sort of restless, reckless, hmm. um, having fun kind of. Uh, phase of life they start to mature out of that they've often got children um, around and about the place they might want to have a stable relationship they are a bit sick of basically the lifestyle they're sick of coming in and out of prison particularly being in prison a prison in New Zealand in particular is not horribly horribly aversive but it's also not that interesting at the very least <laughs> you know I'm sure there are worse things about prison than this but I my biggest fear would be how bored I'd be yeah yeah I think bored it's, it's supposed to sort of get to you by boredom I think yeah at least in New Zealand um, because we you know we don't employ the harshest kind of some of the harsh stuff that has been done in, in the US to okay. prisoners it doesn't work it doesn't reduce recidivism and it's not you know it's a human rights violation quite often to do some of the things people conjure up as good ideas for offenders <laughs> Um, uh, by the way, uh, you've used a word that I'm gonna. I have been oh. practicing pronouncing. Re- reciv- Dang it, I lost it. Recidivism. No, re- do it again. Recidivism. Recidivism. Yeah. There we go. And what does that mean? Various definitions. For the purposes of today, I'm talking, I guess, about reoffending and getting caught. So it's important okay. to understand that, of course, most crime is never detected by the system in any right. shape or form. But generally, um, and somewhat cynically, people will say, well, correctional systems only care about the people that get caught again. So if we could just make them better offenders, <laughs> our programs would look great. you know. But, but um, they will get caught eventually. But that is something enough. you can measure. And yes. that's, and that's yeah, how you exactly. measure the success of what you're doing. That is the kind of, you know, that's the kind of where the rubber hits the road stuff. So okay. any government that's putting money into programs and interventions for offenders will want to see that they're actually reducing the number of people who come back, like okay. that the okay. investment is worth making. So so you were going down the thread when I stopped you about um, they're, they've been in prison for a while, they're, they've matured out a little well, bit, and maybe to, they, yeah. now, now they yeah. don't really, they're motivated to find ways to not be back in? More motivated. More motivated. But the the challenges then, of course, are that as you go through your criminal life, you acquire a whole lot of handicaps or snares, they call them, to define the fact that they they make it hard for you to leave the system. So you're going to have probably, you might not have a driver's license, you might not have a bank account, you might... Your CV doesn't look all that good. You know, <laughs> a little you hard might, to get a job. You might have an offensive tattoo on your face, especially if you're mm. a New Zealand um, gang member. You know, things mm. that will generally make it that much harder to get into housing, to get into work. So even though you now want to, often, um, people, I think, genuinely want to turn things around. And we've, we've done, there's been quite a lot of research done on how it is people manage in the community and, and why they don't. If it's too hard, because you can't get back on your feet easily, then you'll probably tend to go back to what you were doing. Um, right, right. Easier. But that would be true of anybody. It kind of, a lot That's of it is just specific. ordinary. Yeah, it's just ordinary things. It's not remarkable. Right. You know, it makes so, sense. So let's, let's say, but in the, in the definition of uh, psychopathy here, I've got um, this antisocial behavior. I don't, I don't think anything about the repercussions of my behavior to others. I'm, um, what is it again? Fiercely, no, do, fierce, fearlessly dom- dominant. Fearlessly dominant. <laughs> I keep saying fierce, fearlessly dominant, yeah, yeah. and uh, and, and maybe I'm mean and all <laughs> yeah, these things. Yeah. But how do you? What kind of training one on one can you do with somebody to change those things? Well, most of what we do is actually done in groups. 
groups. Um, oh, really? We, we use group interventions for a number of reasons. Um, so, for example, the program that I've had the most to do with runs groups of 10 men through about an eight, nine-month program where they meet in a group three to four times a week for you know two to three hours with with a pair of therapists or facilitators and they work their way through a whole lot of of things so primarily where that starts actually is with socializing them to being in a group together oh just being able to be in a group and behave with each other that's right because i mean it's hilarious really because simple things like how do you give feedback to one of the other people in the group about what they've just said so people oh, survive prison by being... keeping the, by wearing blinkers, just minding their own business. Okay, a lot, and they they're not necessarily they're not like people who've been to college and all that sort of thing. So they don't necessarily have good ways of giving like communicating with each other, and they're suspicious too. They're suspicious of each other. We have to create a culture where you can get people to even work together, and that's extremely challenging. As I've already mentioned, we have a lot of um, adult gang members in these units as well. Adult what? Adult gang members. Gang members, So we have quite a major criminal gang problem in New Zealand, adult gangs, sometimes now multi-generational, mainly Māori, but not exclusively. And they function as extended kind of family networks. And some people may not know the word you just said. Uh, Maori is no, the New Zealand, uh, native, yes, indigenous people indigenous of New Zealand. People. Okay, uh, who are of course um, very overrepresented in prison, as are indigenous people in just about every Western nation. But in New Zealand, uh, somewhat shamefully, fifty percent of our prisoners are Maori, and they're about fifteen to eighteen percent of the population. Oh wow! So it's a wow. it's an egregious. Um, Imbalance really reflects years and years of trying to get rid of them, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, as a colony, New Zealand was quite committed to trying to uh, eradicate the, the natives. <laughs> and it kind of shows after a few generations and in a lot of damage. Makes you proud. It makes right you proud there. to be a descendant I'm, I'm of proud them proud folks. Well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so you've got these guys in group and yeah. you've gotten them to like actually communicate with each yeah. other and, and yeah. maybe respond to each other when they're opening up and talking about things? Yes, and that takes some time and it can come and go. Cause <laughs> That's the first eight months. <laughs> right, well, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then what you're doing is... Um, is You've, we, we do assessment before we get started, so we gather information. So we, we learn something about each each man's history, where he's come from, what his particular um, the, what the particular kind of... We kind of develop a theory for each man, really, based on what we know more generally about criminal behaviour, but also what we know about his background. And that's, that identifies for him and us what the key things are that, that underpin what's going wrong for him in terms of his criminal behaviour. You know, for, for, for one man, it might be that he's got a partner who, who quite likes it that he does crime and benefits from his burglaries or... I mean, that's not common, but it does happen. Another one will be, you know, be a gang member and he's trying to prove himself or something like that, and they'll... There'll be someone else who's been trying to get out of it for ages, but um, they keep losing their job and then they can't survive, so they go and do something to get some kind of income. You know, we've got the drug drug dealing people who really don't, they'd like to be able to live on the kind of income you can get when you've got no CV, but, <laughs> but you know, earning $5,000 a week selling methamphetamine is a lot more attractive if things go wrong, so that might be their thing. So we kind of, and it's not one thing either, it's a bunch of things. The criminal peers thing, for example, that you mentioned before, the having criminal associates, that's a huge risk factor. Um, so we identify all of those, and we but use wait, those to motivate them. Did you know that's a risk factor in being overweight? Yes, that, isn't that fascinating? That they've done a lot of studies about, like, if you if you have overweight friends, you're probably going to be overweight. And if you yep. pursue, I mean, th- th- I guess that is one of the reasons people try to lose weight together. But you've got to make sure your reward system isn't, and then whoever wins gets ice cream, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, right. I've been on those teams. <laughs> yeah, no, and they're fun, ice cream. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> but when you look around at families, you can quite often see one family looks like this and another one looks like that. And it's, right. you know, to the extent that it's diet related, that seems like a common thing. Isn't there also speculation that that relates to sharing biome? Oh, those people. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. Are we getting off topic? At all? A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> oh, and, I told, and I told Devin I wanted her to stay on topic and this time. I didn't time. do that. You nope. didn't. <laughs> I think I get that point. So have you actually had success with reducing recidivism? I get it? No? Recidivism? That. There you go. Reducing recidivism in, uh, in the criminal system in New Zealand from the work that you've done to develop these processes to help rehabilitate them? Yes. So I, I was talking about the government really wanting to see that they were doing the right thing here. So the New Zealand government requires that the Department of Corrections report back in their annual report every year um, what's called the rehabilitation quotient, which is a number that reflects the it's a difference score, and, okay. it ref- and it reflects how many people who did the program stayed out of prison when they would have been in prison had they not done it. <laughs> so so what that's kind of a predictive thing in there, too. Yeah, there is. A, I mean, because there always is. I mean, risk assessment and predicting who will do what and how quickly is a huge part of what we need to be able to do in corrections. Okay. So there's quite a lot of science around that as well. But essentially what we're saying is we take a bunch of people who've done the program and compare them to a bunch of other people who haven't, mm-hmm. and we control across those two groups all of the f- other factors besides the program that would predict whether they'll get reconvicted again. Yeah, that control group, that's the hard part, right? That's right. So it's it's done statistically. I could spend another whole show telling you about all of this because it comes down to the debate about how you ever know if something works. And this is important in health and it's important, you know, in lots of different parts of life where you're taking an intervention group and comparing them to something else and trying to work out if there's been a difference from the intervention. But the way that's reported, as I said, is a number. So, for example, our really good these high-risk programs are, are the ones that the department gets the most impact out of. And what's typically being found at the moment is a gap of about 17%. So what that really means is if 100 people who, who went through this program were compared with an identical 100 people who didn't, there would be 17 people per 100 in the treatment group who we would have expected back in prison, but they're not back. And so that hypothetical, we think that means... It that's would, a significant know, percentage. It's a big That's it's a really big, effect, big. Yeah. yeah. And it's as big as you get in this area. Well, especially if you're looking at 5% of the people doing uh, yeah. 95% of the crime. Yeah. If you can reduce that from 95% of the crime, now you're down 17% well, they, from they that. They do 50% of crime, not 95%. Oh, sorry, 50%. But it's still a decent still, chunk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you got yeah. that down... Yeah. Oh, wow. So it doesn't necessarily... It's very unlikely, in fact, to mean that they're model citizens. But when you consider that the, <laughs> the best... The best research suggests that the best prison does on its own is not to make people worse. Oh, I read your uh, in your paper. You said at best the the change by putting somebody in prison is zero point zero zero. Yeah, and that's your way of saying at best it doesn't mm. make them any worse. There is some studies suggesting prison makes people more likely to recidivate, wow. and it's quite. It's, there's another new word, recidivate. Okay, wait a, a minute. Whole you can't recidivate if you never went into prison in the first place. Ha. That'd be sedivate. Hmm. <laughs> but if you went to prison and were released. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. There's some evidence that prison people who've been to prison are more likely to get back into trouble and get reconvicted wow. than they would have if they'd not been sentenced to prison for the same offence history. Hmm. Now, that's hard to work as well statistically, but this, so it's hard to, to show that. But there has been shown in a couple of studies 
an increase in the likelihood of coming back to prison from being in prison. And so one of the things I often talk about in this research is, you know, because people will say, oh, rehabilitation didn't work for, you know, if it worked for 17 people per 100, what about the rest? You know, it didn't work for them. Let's throw it away. Complete waste of time. Oh, wow. And let's go back to the thing we know doesn't work at all. Because <laughs> that's the <laughs> argument. And in New Zealand, we spend $100,000 a year plus, it's actually more than that now, per prisoner keeping someone in prison, which is a, much more than I believe in a lot of U.S., prisons. So it's an enormous amount of money going into keeping people somewhere that doesn't actually have any beneficial effect on their safety for others when they get right. out. It, it might it may make them not out and doing more but that's the, the well, because they're not out on the street doing more crime. So but while, they're not, while they're in prison, they're not doing stuff in the community, or at least not to the same extent, though you'd be surprised what you can organise on the phone. Um, but they're but basically having a lot less impact out in the community. That's true. Right. But of course, that's a very expensive way to do you that. You still have to. And you can't do that with everyone who does a crime because you'd have, you know, well, in New Zealand, one in three. One in three men has a criminal conviction by the time they're in their, I think it's early 30s. So one have, in three? Yeah. Well, crime's common. A lot of it's minor, you know. Yeah. So you couldn't put all those people in prison because there'd be no one left to do anything. I think one of the fun parts about this conversation is I know nothing about the criminal justice system in the United States. So I can't say, well, we're way better than that or we're way worse because I don't know any numbers like that. You're worse on most things. (laughs) Yeah. No, I didn't actually want you to tell me. No, No, I didn't want to know that. And I can just say that and you can't defend yourself. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, like you said, I think we could go on for a very long time. And I have a feeling I'm going to drag you into coming back, but uh, oh. I'm 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 not more terrified. I uh, think I have a better understanding, and I, I really appreciate you coming on and explaining some of this stuff to me. This is uh, this is fascinating. I've enjoyed this. Well, it's been a great opportunity for me too, because I spend a lot of time talking to people who already know this stuff. So I have no idea what other people think about it anymore. And it's you know you can tell from how people ask questions what's actually interesting about it still, and what's just something everyone knows. Right, so right. Yeah, I don't know anything one. about this. Well, you do now. Yeah. Well, like I said, I. I do enjoy having a show that nobody can say I I didn't uh, I didn't wasn't specific in my title I I can do whatever I want and we're yeah. we're drinking water right now so that's that is sad. our yeah. virtual pond yeah that's right it's a pretty small pond I personally couldn't get into it I'm not even going to try <laughs> no Doctor Gary prefers uh, other drinks but um, yes. so if people want to find out uh, more about what you're doing I will spell your name for them yep and that sounds uh, good. It, it, uh, and hopefully you'll give us a couple of links, Matt. I think the paper that you uh, that I have that you wrote is is a real good resource for people to read more depth about this. And it's actually fairly human readable. Yes, that particular paper is for a, a, a scientific journal that really tries to make things short and pithy and accessible. So I'm hoping that's what we achieve with that paper. <laughs> yeah, as far as I was able to read in the half hour I had, I, well, I actually understood yeah. most of it. So that was really good. And, and what that paper does actually is talk a lot more about how what we know about whether people with psychopathy can actually change. And, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's still a fascinating area that... Hardly any research has actually looked at. Yeah, that's fascinating yeah, to me that yeah. there hasn't been much research on that. Well, it hasn't because it was a spectacular Canadian study in the 60s that appeared to show that people with psychopathy and treatment got worse and more violent as a result. It's actually, I think, not plausible that that's what actually happened. But because of that study, people decided that you shouldn't treat psychopathy because you could be making them worse. Oh, so they just so stopped slow, the whole area dead for, for about 20 years. So, yeah, fascinating, wow. really. So many things we used to think we knew. Yeah, and the more you get into them, the less you know. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's got to be a good place to cut it off. Thank you very yes. much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for the opportunity, Alison. I really appreciated it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. 
Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSillaCast ways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other NoSilla castaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.